And as the children are being dismissed to junior church, let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. Lord willing, taking a look at verses 16 through 22 this morning. The title of our message is A Stairway to Heaven, Part 2. Will there be a Part 3? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Of course, we're continuing our study verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And these are chapters which are really so uh, foundational to the development of God's revelation as God has his hand on a particular people, uh, the nation of Israel. He's been dealing with Abraham and then Isaac and then also Jacob, which is where we find ourselves, and then later on Joseph. Let's see, I think you guys need to switch the slides for me so they can see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There we go. So these are the men that God chose and raised up and through whom the nation of Israel is being born. If you don't have a nation of Israel, you don't have a Savior. And so that's what's being developed in these chapters. So we come to Genesis chapter 28, and Jacob has fled, or I guess I should say is in the process of fleeing to Haran up north. And the reason he's fleeing is his brother is trying to kill him because of what happened in the prior chapter. Of course, the veneer that's been put over this uh, flight is he needs to get married. So let's send him up to Haran to get a wife. And that is a very big deal. But really what's happening behind the scenes beyond that issue is he is fleeing for his own life. And it's on this flight up into Haran, which is about 450 miles from the land of Canaan, where Jacob is, he comes to a place called uh, Bethel. And it's at Bethel that God gives him further insight into his program. Reaffirms to Jacob many of the promises that God had made to his grandfather, Abraham. One of the things that he has seen is this um, stairway, if you will. A lot of translations say ladder. It's probably better termed a stairway connecting earth and heaven. He saw angels ascending and descending up and down this staircase. And it's at this point that he has a tremendous recognition there in verses 16 and 17. Notice the recognition. It says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep. In other words, he's had a dream seeing this this staircase. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. What place are we talking about? We're talking about Bethel. And... When he says the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it, he's referring to the dream that he had, verse 12. But I have to be honest with you, as I was trying to work through this passage this week, this sort of convicted me. Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. There have been many, many times in my ministry where God is clearly at work. I just didn't recognize it at that particular instant. A number of circumstances have happened here at Sugarland Bible Church where some new people come and they seem to have all of the bells and the whistles. Um, they're carrying their Bibles. Um, they talk the right talk. 
And my reaction, you know, as sort of a pastor is to try to, to throw myself into these people sort of with the hope that maybe down the road they're going to be a blessing to us. Maybe that's kind of a selfish motive, but sometimes I do that. And there have been others that have come that are sort of people that look insignificant. They don't really seem to fit the part. And over the course of time, I've been rebuked many times where I have poured myself really into the wrong people. I've been operating on the basis of sight, and I should have been paying attention to some of the more insignificant people in the world's way of thinking. And many times it's the insignificant people that end up doing major ministries here. It's the so-called insignificant people that end up sometimes becoming staff members. And this is how the Lord has worked in my life, where I have seen the Lord at work down the road, but I didn't recognize it at the time. This is the kind of thing that that Jacob is experiencing I just traveled here. I traveled through Bethel. I didn't think really think anything of it. But the Lord was here the whole time. I'm just recognizing it now. Paul the Apostle, when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and following, says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things um, that are so that he may nullify the, uh, the things that are not rather so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. As God is at work in your life and he's bringing people in and out of your life, I would just encourage all of us to pay attention to that ancient principle. The Lord may be at work in someone's life that from the world's perspective looks somewhat insignificant. You might be shocked in the people that God chooses to use for his purposes. God doesn't think the way man thinks. The book of Isaiah, chapter 55, I believe around verses 10 and 11, says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are the ways of God above our ways. His ways are not our ways. Our ways are not His ways. We we work according to sort of a, wor- a worldly Standard, God is at work through many things that the world system would deem insignificant. And so God could be at work in your very midst and it just takes a while to figure it out. I went to this place called Bethel. I didn't really think much of it. But the Lord was there the whole time, Jacob says, verse 16. And at the time I did not recognize it. I did not know it. His recognition moves to a state of fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear, I think, here is describing respect for the things of God. This is the reaction that Jacob is having, having awakened from this dream with this amazing vision that he saw in this dream, this stairway connecting earth to heaven. Look at verse 17. He, it says of Jacob, was afraid. And I said, how awesome is this place? There is none other. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Notice his reaction here of of fear. When sinful man comes into the presence of God, this is typically the reaction that you see in the scripture. Remember Isaiah, when he was called into the ministry? All the way back in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, uh, where he saw the seraphim in this vision 
saying day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. What was Isaiah's reaction when he saw that? He fell into a state of fear. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. When John was marooned on the island of Patmos at the end of the first century, and he saw a vision of the glorified Christ... And that's exactly what John saw right there. How do I know that? Because I found it on the internet, so it must be true. (laughs) He he, he saw something that, that, that literally terrified him. This is the same John that leaned against the chest of Christ in the upper room about 60 years earlier. Now John sees the same Jesus, but in his fully glorified state... And he says in Revelation 1, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. There's um, a scene in the Gospels where Peter sort of, for whatever reason, perhaps for the first time, gets a glimpse of who Jesus really is. The incarnate Son of God. And it says in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is the kind of thing that Jacob is experiencing as he he awakens from this dream. He, he, He was afraid. And I bring this up because I think this is a part of God's character that we have a tendency to forget very fast, particularly in our culture. We are so accustomed to the grace of God, and thank God for the grace of God, that we've forgotten His holiness, and we have a tendency to lose respect for who God actually is. In other words, if God were to manifest in this room, and we were not covered through the shed blood of His Son, the reaction would be abject and total fear. Have we become so comfortable with God that we have forgotten the true character of God? Even uh, some of the slang, you know, that's on the Christian shirts that people wear. I was looking at one particular shirt and it said, you know, God's rad, he's my dad kind of shirt. On one end of the stick you say, well, that's true. I mean, he is our father. We Call him Abba Father, which means Daddy. But are, are you know are we so comfortable with that interaction that we've forgotten exactly who God is, the holiness of God, the fact that God's eyes are so pure that He can't even look upon sin. Today, uh, with things that are happening in the news, everybody's talking about revival. Revival is breaking out. Have you ever studied revivals? True revivals? Have you ever looked at the first great awakening in the United States of America? All of which was accomplished without any internet or social media or radio or television. It was a man named Jonathan Edwards. I'm not endorsing every little nook and cranny of Jonathan Edwards' theology. I'm just saying he was the man that God used to launch the first great awakening in America. And his sermon was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the testimonies were such that people, as they listened to him speak... The few historians I've read on this indicated that Jonathan Edwards wasn't the greatest orator. It was sort of a a sermon that was read, you know, a lot like a manuscript. Probably wasn't that exciting to listen to. I mean, I don't even think he had PowerPoint and fancy pictures from the Internet. And yet that was what 
America needed at that point. They needed a reminder of God's holiness. And the testimonies of people that were around and heard that sermon, they were almost gripping the seats that they were sitting in for fear of sliding into hell itself. Once you understand the holiness of God, the depth of God's character, you start to see why the provision that he has made for us in the person of Jesus Christ is an absolute necessity. I do not plan on standing before God one day in my own self-righteousness. I plan on standing before God in the righteousness that he transfers to me at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. And yet if we do not understand the holiness of God and the natural fear it should interject into our lives, we we have a tendency to lose that whole concept. God has every right to take us into judgment. It's like you, you drive in here at 85 miles an hour and you see a police officer. Your reaction towards that police officer is you really don't like his presence. Because you know he has the authority and the ability to bring you into judgment for exceeding the speed limit. That is the reaction that sinful people always have in the presence of God. It's, it's a fearful thing, the book of Hebrews tells us, to fall into the hands of the living God. And praise the Lord for the fact that God the Father punished God the Son in our place 2,000 years ago. And had that not happened, I'd be facing God in my own religiosity, which at the end of the day is really not worth a lot. So Jacob here, upon awakening from this dream, says, says, I was afraid. And he describes the place where he was. It says, and said, Jacob, how awesome is this place? There is none. This is none other than the house of God. Now, this is a place that's going to be given the name Bethel down in verse 19. This is the place where Jacob stopped as he was fleeing up north from the land of Canaan uh, into Haran. Um, He is still in the land of Canaan. If you look at that first arrow there, that's likely where Bethel is. The house of God, this is where Bethel gets its name. It comes from two Hebrew words, Bayet house and El God. Put them together, the house of God. Why name this the house of God? Because this was the revelation from God of the staircase connecting earth to heaven that Jacob saw. And how does Jacob conclude all of this in verse 17 at the very end? It says, this is the gate of heaven. That's why this verse is so significant or this place is so significant. Reminding us a little bit about what Jacob saw in this dream, going back to verse 12 and 13 just for a moment. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder, better said a staircase, was set on earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. What is the greatest problem or conundrum in all of the scripture? I believe that it is expressed in the oldest book of the Bible, which would be the book of Job, where Job, you know, had all of these problems, all of these uh, difficulties, and he just wanted the opportunity to get into heaven to explain his case to God. But then he said to himself, how could I do that? God is God and I'm, I'm just a man. What I need is a mediator. I need a a, a staircase of some kind that would, who could put his hands on both of us. And through that I could make my case to God. 
Job says in Job 9, verses 32 and 33, concerning God in the midst of all of his problems, he says, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. I need an umpire. I need an intermediary. Job expresses that basic problem in the first or the oldest book of the Bible and the rest of the Bible. What is it doing? It's answering that conundrum. Because there has come one who can bridge heaven and earth. And the only one that can bridge God and man is the, is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was 100% God. 100% man, only he qualifies as a mediator between God and man. And this reveals the foolishness of people who think, well, I'm just going to get to God through any path I choose. How, do you, how does that work exactly? Don't you have to have a mediator to represent both parties? And how can a man mediate to God and God mediate to man? Oh, it's resolved in the person of Jesus Christ because he is the God man. First Timothy chapter two, verse five says there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Of course, as we referenced last week, this story of Jacob's ladder or Jacob's staircase is referenced by Jesus himself very early on in John's gospel. It says in John 1, verse 47 and following, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said of him, Behold an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, referring to Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things. Greater things than these. Well, what would those be? I mean, what's, what's greater than calling someone the son of God and the king of Israel? You're going to come to an understanding of who I am as the God-man. The Greek calls him the monogenes, one of a kind, who is uniquely equipped to bridge the gap between God and man. And he said to him, truly I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I mean, you're, you're, you're impressed because of my omniscience. You're, you're impressed to the point where you've got a few correct titles given to me by you. You, you ain't seen nothing yet. You, you stick around and you watch what's going to happen over these next three, three and a half years. And you're going to come to a full understanding of who I am as the God man, the one who links Earth to heaven and heaven to earth. Job's conundrum is answered in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus in John 14 and verse 6 said, says, I am the way. Notice the definite article. Or articles, the truth, the life. And if that weren't enough, no one comes to the Father but through me. Why in the world would a person that claims to understand the Bible waste their time praying to the saints or praying to Mary? Now, we don't want to disrespect Mary. Mary is obviously somebody who was used mightily by God. She deserves a place of respect in Christian thought, but she's no intermediary. Any more any more than the saints of the past are intermediaries because they aren't. A God-man. There's only one God-man. And only he can link earth 
to heaven. And this is the type of realization I think that Jacob is, is coming to. That there, there's coming one who is going to link heaven to earth in a way that no one came. He would, this revelation came to him when he was in Bethel. I think perhaps he's starting to understand that this is why God is forming the nation of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring forth this intermediary. And what is his reaction? He, he's afraid. He, he describes how awesome this place is. He says, you know, I didn't even recognize God was here. And so he gives it this new name called Bethel, which means house of God. And upon this recognition and this realization, he goes into worship. And the worship takes two parts or two phases. There's a pillar, verses 18 and 19, and then there's a vow, verses 20 through 22. Notice this pillar. We have the pillar, verse 18, and a name for the pillar, verse 19. Look at verse 18. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. This is, this is worship. Now, this business here about him using a stone as a pillow, you know, the My Pillow Man is on every commercial now. I never see him advertising this stone to sleep on. Um, people will look at this and they'll discredit the Bible out of the gate. And they say, look at the Bible. Look at all the tall tales it's filled with. People actually using a stone as a, as a pillow. We saw that back in verse, uh, what was it, verse 11. This is where a little bit of knowledge of Hebrew helps because the text doesn't say he slept with his head on a rock for a a pillow. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says the next thing he did was he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, which has been misunderstood to mean that he used it as a pillow, but a stone would make a rather uncomfortable pillow. Amen to that. The Hebrew literally reads at his head, not under his head. It means the stone was a place, was placed at his head, as was the case with Saul's spear, 1 Samuel 26, verse 7, where the same terminology is used. And then he lay down in that place to sleep. Why bring these kinds of things up in sermons? Because you're dealing with a culture that will, and you're interacting with co-workers, family members, many of them being unsaved, that will just dismiss the Bible right out of the gate because it looks like it's a bunch of tall tales, and yet the Bible is not a tall tale. It's just a bad English translation. That's why we bring these things up. But this rock that was over his head, he takes it and he pours oil on it. He consecrates it. It's sort of like a a rock of devotion based on the vision that he just saw. It's kind of interesting that God is into monuments. You know, we have a culture today that's trying to tear down all of our monuments. When I look at the Bible, I think think God is interested in monuments because they're records of what God did. And even if some of our culture was confused on the issue of slavery and race, why not just leave the monument up as a testimony to how we've grown since then? But we're living in this mindset where we want to wipe history out, strip history away, uh, no monuments, and yet God in his word is interested in monuments. One of them was put up when the miracle of the drying of the Jordan took place. In the book of Joshua, it says, Joshua 4, verses 19 through 24. Now the people came to the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. The 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, they set up at Gilgal. He said to the sons of Israel, when, not if, 
when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. That all the peoples of the earth, that's the part of it that is amazing to me, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord is mighty so that we may fear the Lord your God forever. You know, the next book, the book of Judges, says there arose a generation that had no knowledge of God. Kind of like our society. We're living in a generation that has almost no understanding of biblical truth. They have no understanding of the miracles that God did to get our own country off the ground. And that's why these monuments become important. Because as these 12 stones are set up at Gilgal, the kids are going to ask their dads. Did you catch that? It doesn't say the kids are going to ask their pastor. The kids are going to ask their youth pastor. The kids are going to ask their fathers, what are these stones doing here? And now, Dad, here's your opportunity to teach them about the miracle that God did concerning the drying up of the Jordan. And don't stop there. Talk about what God did in the prior generation concerning the crossing of the Israelis from Egypt Across the Red Sea. Talk talk about the great works of God. And as you do this, the whole world is going to know who God is. It puts a tremendous responsibility and obligation on fathers to be, first of all, available to children. So that these kinds of questions and these kind of conversations can even take place. I mean, if, you, if you're too busy uh, figuring out your bracket for brackets for the NCAA March Madness and you don't have time for conversations with your children on what really matters and what really counts, maybe our priorities are not exactly where they need to be. And maybe that's why we are living amongst a generation that really knows nothing about the things of God. The, the, the significance of monuments like this the ability of a child to look at a monument and say, what is this all about? And the willingness of a father who is equipped with knowledge to pour into the life of a child or a grandchild the knowledge of God. I I wish this could be outsourced. But God says you can't outsource this. You can't outsource it to a church. You cannot outsource it to a youth pastor or a pastor or an elder board. That's your responsibility as a parent. It's your responsibility as a grandparent. To pour into the lives of these young people the great things of God. And use the normal, natural conversations that arise with monuments and things of that nature to explain these things. Jacob, because of what he saw here, sets up this this pillar. And he actually gives this pillar a name. It's there in verse 19. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of that city had been Luz. So we have a new name, Bethel, for this place. Bayet, house, El, God, house of God. And yet, prior to this, this city or this area where Jacob was had a different name, the name Luz. Um, if you're looking for more biblical material on this, you might want to jot down Hosea 12, verse 4. It mentions Bethel. This is the exact same place that Abraham sojourned. In the life of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 8. Genesis 35 verse 6 says Bethel had the former name Luz, as in Genesis 48 verse 3, Joshua 16 verse 2. In other words, God took an old name and gave it a new name. And I'm here to tell you folks that that's God's specialty. 
He takes the old and makes it new. Um, did you know that when you receive Christ as your Savior, you're given a new name? Why are you given a new name? Because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Jesus, speaking to the church at Philadelphia, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 12, talks about three new names they had. He says, He who overcomes, a believer in other words, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Hey, Philadelphia, you've got three names. Christ, uh, God's new name, the name of the city that you're now a citizen of, the new Jerusalem, which will come upon the earth in Revelation 21 and 22. And then Jesus writes on you his name. Why all this new naming? Because you're a new person. You're a new creature. You have a new identity. You've been born spiritually. You're already born physically, but now you're born from above. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. In fact, your identity is so different than what it used to be. God gives you a brand new name. Taking the old and making it new is the specialty of God. Isn't that what we read about in the book of Revelation, the last two chapters? Revelation 21 and verse 5, it says, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. You might come before the Lord and you might say, Lord, I need a new start. And the Lord says, You came to the right place. Because I'm in the business of taking what's old and making it new. And of course it starts when a person trusts in Christ for salvation. And they receive that new identity. And now Jacob um, makes a vow. And you see that vow there. The act of the vow described in chapter 20, it says, Then Jacob made a vow. You know, this interesting, it's kind of interesting to study this in the Bible, making vows unto God. There's a lot of scripture on this. I was sort of surprised at how much God's word is devoted to this subject. Jonah, remember in the belly of the fish? <laughs> Talk about a time to make a vow to God. That would be it. He says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay for salvation is of the Lord. What kind of vow is this? It has content. The content is revealed in the second part of verse 20 going through verse 22. There's something God will do. Verse 20b through 20a. And then based on that, there's something that Jacob will do. What does God do? Four things. Number one, he promises his presence. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give to me food to eat and garments to wear. Verse 21, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This is, uh, this is God's part. Now, this is uh, somewhat important because verse 23 says, saying, if God will be with me. That may not be the best English translation it might be better translated since he is with me rather than if God is with me. 
Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes on these verses, in verses 20 to 21, he focused on what God would do, beginning in verse 21b, with God's provision for Jacob. If God will be with me, meaning if God's presence will be indeed with him. The word if can also mean since. Since God will be with me, which is really a response of gratitude rather than a response of testing, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. In other words, God, since God is already going to do these things for me, there's about four things mentioned, uh, I, I, I think I should live differently. In other words, the truth of what God has already done should impact my life and my behavior as a follower of Jesus Christ and as a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what exactly has God done? The first thing that he mentions here is he says, if God will be with me, his presence. that's That's a remarkable thing. To think about that as a New Testament church age believer, you have inside of you the Holy Spirit, which is inside of you for how long? Forever. John 14, verses 16 and 17. In other words, anywhere I go, I have the presence of God with me. That's why the New Testament warns about quenching the Spirit, Grieving the Spirit, it never in the epistles warns about, oh, you might lose the Spirit. Because God is with you everywhere you go. Matthew 28, 20. The Great Commission passage. I am with you always. Not sometimes, always. Even to the ends of the earth. Hebrews 13, verse 5. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I understand that in this world that we're living in with all of these bank failures and all of these things we're learning about and inflation, there are people that are walking through some really deep waters. And you have to understand that as you walk through those life circumstances as a Christian, God is with you every step of the way. Jacob says, since God is with me. His presence. Since God is with me and will keep me on his on this journey that I take, not only do I have God's presence, I have his protection. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 17 says, No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. It doesn't say weapons won't be developed against you. What it says is no weapon formed against you will prosper. And then it says this is the inheritance of the saints of the Lord. I don't know how you interpret that. I interpret it as follows. There is absolutely nothing that can come into your life as a child of God without God permissively allowing it. And if God has permissively allowed it, then it must be there for a higher purpose other than my immediate comfort. Other than God allowing difficulties into our life, absolutely nothing can touch your life. It's um, the frustration Satan had when he accused Job before God. Satan says, well, you put a hedge around him. But lower the hedge, and he'll curse you to your face. And God said, okay. In other words, the the hedge couldn't be lowered unless God allowed it. And even when the hedge was lowered, Satan was put on a leash. Do what you need to do, but you can't kill him. Even when God lowers the hedge of protection and allows things into our lives, adversity and so forth, even that in and of itself is limited in what it can do. It's the presence of God and the protection of God. What else? The provision of God. If God is with me and will keep me on this journey that I will take, And give me food to eat and garments to wear. 
There's another way God was looking out for Jacob through provision. Philippians 4 verse 19. And my God will supply all of your greeds. Doesn't say that. I wish it said greeds. Doesn't say that. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. David in Psalm 37 verse 25 says, I have been young and now I'm old. In other words, I've seen it all. Yet I have, here's something I haven't seen. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his seed or descendants begging for bread. I've never seen that. Although I've seen a lot. The provision of God. These verses here on the screen, boy, you need to jot those down and claim them because of the financial issues that are going on in our country. Exodus 16, God provided manna the whole way for 40 years. The moment the children of Israel left Egypt. And the manna kept falling like clockwork. Until the day that Joshua entered the land of Canaan and the land was capable of sustaining its inhabitants. Only at that point did the manna stop. But for 40 years, like clockwork, there it was. Every single day, other than the Sabbath. And these people were pretty... Boy, how would you like to be the pastor of that group that came out of Egypt? Not exactly models for the spiritual life. And yet, here comes the provision, like clockwork. What did Jesus say? Give us this day our daily bread. First uh, Kings 17, 2 through 6 is how God fed Elijah with ravens. In other words, if the, the source that God uses to provide for you might fluctuate from time to time in your life. That's God's business. The provision will be there. Yeah, but pastor, what if I lose my job? Well, who said God has to provide for you through your job? God is very creative. He can provide for you all kinds of ways. Now, granted, he typically provides people through work, but God understands that there are circumstances where jobs disappear. The provision of God never stops. Psalm 37, 25, David, what he said, we've already read. You need to read Matthew 6, 25 through 34, where Jesus says, if God takes care of the birds... You know, we've got two two cats in our house now. I've never owned a cat. I've got two. Two females. Not that that matters, but so I throw that in. We have this little um, light, you know, like a pointer where it puts a light on the floor and you just kind of move it around and the cats chase it. And I'm figuring out through this that these cats are not made in the image of God. (laughs) Because they will chase this light as if there's no tomorrow and they will never stop. And someone that's made in God's image would have an intellect and they would figure out that the light that they're chasing isn't anything real. The cats never figure it out. And yet God takes care of beings that do not bear his image. How much more is he going to take care of a person who's, who's manufactured in the image of God? So therefore, why, why would I waste my time being worried about inflation, deflation, stagflation, everything else, bank failures, as, as if these things are surprising to God? He takes care of the birds. He takes care of the animals. Why won't he take care of you? Oh, ye of little faith. Oh, there's the problem. I don't really trust God. So I feel I've got to hoard things for the day of scarcity. And there's nothing wrong with thinking ahead and planning. But the truth of the matter is, folks, you can plan until the cows come home. And your planning is not going to help you in the end. It's the hand of God that helps you. The provision of of God. 
And Jacob is saying, since God is doing all of these things for me, his presence, his protection, his provision, and then you get down to verse 21, and I return to my father's house in safety. He's leaving for Haran, since God is going to bring me back. Does God bring back the Israelis from being outside of the land? He does it all the time. The Israelis were outside of the land in the days of the Egyptian bondage, and they went right back into the land. They were outside of the land during the days of the Babylonian captivity, and they went right back into the land. Today, they've been outside of their land for 2,000 years in what's called the diaspora, subsequent Rome kicking them out into AD 70, and yet what are your newspaper headlines saying every single day? The Jews are going right back into the land from which they came. God is really good at this. And Jacob says, God is going to do it for me too. I'm just going to be in Haran for a while, and he's going to, he's going to bring me back into the land of my father's house. Look at all of these things that God is doing. And since that is true, what should I do? You know, what should what should be my reaction? Well, three things real fast. Dedication. Verse 21. Then the Lord will be my God. Since God has done this and is doing that, I'm going to dedicate myself to him. Be careful about your motivation for dedicating yourself to the Lord. You don't dedicate yourself to the Lord to get him to do stuff for you. You dedicate yourself to the Lord because of what he's already done. See, see, that's why I brought up the difference between if and since. Jacob is saying, I'm dedicating myself to the Lord not to get things from him, but because he's already blessing me. That's the whole point of the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. What mercies? Romans 1 through 11. Those are the mercies of God. The unconditional promises of God, right down to the fact that God is not through with Israel and is even going to bring wayward Israel back into the fold. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, since God is doing all of these things, what should I do as a response? Boy, if I don't do it, maybe the blessings are going to stop. Bible doesn't say that. Well, I need to do X, Y, and Z to get God to do something for me. Bible doesn't say that. What it says is look at what he's doing. Look at what he's done. The normal or logical reaction to that is consecration unto him. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's the logical thing to do when you understand who God is and what he's done. You just offer yourself to him. Not because you're afraid he's going to rip out the carpet. You can't believe what what you have. What else does Jacob do? We're back to the pillar. Verse 22. The stone which I have set up as a pillar will be my God's house. This is a perpetual reminder, this monument where future generations can transfer upon spontaneous cue a knowledge of the deep revelation of God. Connecting earth to heaven and heaven to earth. And the last thing he does is it affects his his wallet. The stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Over in Genesis 14 and verse 20, it says of Abram, And blessed be God the Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. 
So I guess, Pastor, you're going to start preaching, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so the, the devourer can be rebuked. Test me in this to see if I'm faithful. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. I guess you're going to start sounding like all the television preachers that say bring to the house of the storehouse of the Lord your tithe which has to be 10%. And if you don't bring in 10%, you're under a curse. And by the way, the 10% needs to come to this ministry. Can't be anywhere else. Well, you can relax. I'm not going to start preaching on that because this is describing what Jacob did. It is not necessarily prescribing what everyone should do. If God puts on your heart to give 10% unto the Lord, then bless you and do it. But God works with us many, many different ways. In fact, this whole idea of bring the tithe into the storehouse, you know where that comes from? That comes from Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, as the nation of Israel was under the Mosaic covenant, which contained blessings and curses. You have to put Malachi 3 into its context. Um, and also, by the way, the, G- the Jews didn't just give 10% to the Lord. They gave three tithes because Israel was a country like the United States, which had a mandatory taxation system. So there were two annual tithes and then there was one tithe that came up every three years. So they were actually giving 23 and a third percent of their income unto the Lord. And they were doing it because the Mosaic law told them to do it. Yet the Mosaic law given at Mount Sinai was given only to Israel, not the church. Romans uh, chapter 6 says we are not under law, but under grace. Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, concerning the Mosaic Law, it says he declares his words to Jacob, Israel, his statutes and his ordinance to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. So you can't develop the doctrine of tithing from Malachi because Malachi is given to Israel as they were functioning under the Mosaic law. You can't develop the doctrine of tithing from the Abraham story and the Jacob story because this is describing what they did, not prescribing what we are supposed to do. So what about this matter of giving? I mean, how, how much should I give? What, what percentage? The New Testament in the epistles will not give you a percentage. The key passage on it is 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, which we're going to study in totality right now. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But as you work your way through those chapters, what you'll discover is the principles of grace giving. And you'll discover a ton of adverbs which modify a verb. In English, they typically end in L-Y. It'll say things like give secretly. Sermon on the Mount, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't, don't, don't give to attract attention to yourself. Give, give proportionally. Give, give as the Lord has blessed you. Give... Joyfully and hilariously, because God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, if it's such a trauma separating you from some greenery in your wallet, then keep your money. Keep it. God doesn't need it. And the truth of the matter is it's not yours anyway. You just haven't figured that out yet. It's all the Lord's. It'll say things like give regularly. Do it on a consistent basis. Yeah, but I want a number. We don't have a number in the age of grace. Israel had a number. We don't have a number. Yeah, but pastor, you haven't answered my question. How much should I give? Go to the Lord and ask him. What are you asking me for? 
Study 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And by the way, don't give to get blessed. Please don't do that. Give because what? You are blessed. That's, that's what's happening here with Jacob. He's blessed. He, he, he's reacting to what he already has. And so, believe it or not, we actually finished the chapter today, which in this church is like a big deal when we finish any anything. So praise the Lord and had a chance to look at the reconfirmation of the Abrahamic covenant, Jacob's recognition, the pillar and the vow, connecting it with a stairway to heaven. In closing, Jesus is the stairway to heaven. The stairway to heaven. And if anybody here within the sound of my voice has never trusted in Christ for salvation, God requires a single condition, which is to believe. Believe means to trust. Once the Spirit places you under conviction, you have to respond by trusting in what Jesus has done. You don't have to walk an aisle to do this. You don't have to give money to do this. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Spirit places you under conviction and you respond through your own free will by placing your trust exclusively in Jesus Christ. It's something you can do right now as I'm speaking. If it's something that you need more explanation on, um, I'm available after the service to talk as are our fine missionaries here today. And let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, your word, how these things happened 2,000 years before the time of Christ, yet they, they speak through your eternal word aggressively into our lives. Help us to walk out these things this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.